0: Hi there, and welcome to Healing at Last, the podcast. Healing at Last is the roadmap to uncovering what happened inside you as a result of the pain of your past. How do you find it, how do you heal it, and how do you move beyond it? So let's get started. Good morning, good morning, good morning. It is the morning for me and not the morning for my guest He is in Australia, um, and today is episode, you know I never get these episode numbers right. I'm going to have to get much more professional at this, but this is episode 16, and if I'm wrong, it'll say so on the outer edges of this podcast. It might say 15, it might say 16, but this is episode, I think, 16 of Healing with Last podcast, Thank you to everyone who tunes in uh, diligently every single week. And this uh, podcast will uh, be a wee bit different from the ones that we've done before in that we have, um, it's it's a bit of a mixture, this one, a mixture of a healing story and then uh, uh, the expertise that has developed from that healing story and this is uh with mark williams dr mark williams professor mark williams is that right mark
1: that is right yeah you can yeah. call me doctor or professor or just mark anyway we'll yeah.
0: Professor, we'll give you your proper title
1: okay. so
0: professor mark williams so i'm just going to read a wee bit of his blurb a wee bit of his profile so we introduce him um, and then we will begin with a conversation. So Mark has, Professor Mark has worked with thousands of students, teachers, health professionals and company directors, keen to understand how the brain works, how do you perform optimally and how to maintain a healthy brain. He regularly runs programs on neuroscience of learning and neuroscience of emotions, how to you hack your habits and how your brain creates our reality which is our particular focus today. Dr. Mark's book, The Connected Species, How Do You Understand the Evolution of Our Brain Can Change the World, will be published internationally 2023. Do you have a date for that yet, Mark?
1: Uh, 15th of August.
0: Oh, very good. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. And it's a pre-order at this stage? Yeah, you
1: can pre-order it now. Yep, sure can.
0: So we'll put all the links on for that. Dr. Mark, or Professor Mark, has extensive academic background in brain research and teaching, and he is Professor of Cognitive Neuroscience with over 25 years experience conducting behavioral and brain imaging research. Wow, that's a mouthful. (laughs) But I think it was really important to give our audience an understanding of what we're about to discuss and the validity of what we're about to discuss And I think that was really important. So hopefully we have set you up well, and hopefully Mark. So everything that we do in this podcast is fundamentally about change. It's about the possibility of change, the hope for change, and it's about it's about the healing at last. Fundamentally, hence hence the name. So that's kind of where we begin. But I would really love to begin because I didn't read it in your blurb, right? But I would really love to begin with your own individual story because it's not a it's not a traditional professor story sure it's not
1: no not at all um so i grew up in a small country town in victoria uh, in australia uh, it was the 70s and 80s um and so it was there was high unemployment there was a lot of drugs. My mother had a mental illness um, and she self-medicated. And I I really disliked school. Um, Back then we had corporal punishment, so you got the strap or the cane. Um, And, yeah, to avoid that, we would go down to the lake and fish and smoke pot. Um, From probably grade five or six, I started doing that um, and continued on. Uh, When I was 16, my principal told my father and myself that I would either be in prison or dead by the time I was 25. So I should go and get an apprenticeship at the local abattoir, uh, which was one of the main industries in the town. Um, So, yeah, I I wasn't your typical academic by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I really didn't think I had much to offer and I was pretty uh, down about myself for a long time. And, um, yeah, I wasn't a not very nice person, I suppose you'd say. I'd I moved to Melbourne fairly soon after that, and I spent a lot of time working in service stations. I used to do the night shift because that was good money um, and a good laugh. Um, and doing, yeah, a lot of other odd jobs. It was actually, ironically, it was when I was 25, the two of my friends uh, had uh, drug overdoses, and that made me realise that I had to do something different Uh, So I went back to school to get my final year um, at that age. And there was a a physics teacher there who saw something in me that I'd never seen before. You know, I I had no no knowledge of the fact that I was actually capable of going to university, but he convinced me to go to university. He convinced me to do science. I fell in love with science. Uh, And then I ended up doing a double major in psychology, because I wanted to learn more about my family and myself and why I got into the place I'd got into. And then I also did physiology. Um, I specialized in in neurology, which is why I ended up as a cognitive neuroscientist. Um, and then finally I ended up, yeah, working at MIT in the US, which is number one school in the world for for neuroscience. So that was amazing, amazing journey for me, an amazing change. Um, in my perception, but yeah, so I went from the kid that that uh, really didn't have any, you know, hope of, um, well, didn't believe in themselves at all, to somebody who ended up working at MIT, which was pretty, pretty astonishing, to be honest. Um, and it made me realise how much we can change, how much, you know, how much we're actually capable of. We're all capable of, and we all have potential. Um, it's just whether or not that potential is actually perceived and seen, and and therefore. You know, it ends up being validated.
0: Wow, how cool is that? So, what was the time frame between the twenty-five-year-old decision and MAT? What was that time frame?
1: So, at twenty-five. I did my my last year of school. Um, then I did. I actually. <laughs> I, I then did four years um, of Bachelor of Science. I then did uh, three years of a PhD. And then I did another three years as a postdoctoral fellow uh, at Melbourne University. Um, And then I got the the research fellowship to go to MIT. Um, So what, about 12 years? About 10 years. Yeah, about 10 years, I suppose it was. yeah. So in 10 years,
0: you had gone from your two biggest (laughs) friends having having an overdose or uh have the drugs overdose and then that switch in me that i have to change something has to change in me that decision
1: yeah it really was for me i felt like a do or die i um yeah I, i didn't want to keep going down the road i was going down and now i understand a lot more about addiction i realize that I did the right thing, which is I moved out away from the situation and completely removed myself from that situation. Of course, that's why most addicts don't yeah. maintain that because they go back into the situation, and it's actually the triggers that that actually set them off. It's not the the drug or the. Uh, yeah the substance or whatever it happens to be it's actually the triggers that are actually triggering that behavior that that causes that addiction so by removing myself completely from that situation removing myself from those people meant that I wasn't triggered by that anymore um and and never I I, I, there was no fallback I never you know thought about having drugs again after that which is pretty amazing um yeah it's
0: always all your focus wasn't going forward. all your focus was on and learning all your that you had this yet kind of yellow brick road and you were on it and that was just hit. and within 12 years you were in MIT. It's pretty incredible.
1: Yeah, it well, was I mean it's to be honest, it's probably part of my personality is that addiction, right? Which my mother also had. Um, and so I just drove that addiction in a different direction. I got addicted to learning and I got addicted to succeeding um, rather than being addicted to alcohol and drugs, um, which is you know, a much better thing to be addicted to. Although that can also, I mean my father also he was addicted to um to work, which also caused a lot of problems in the family. And so I think both I think I probably got the addiction from both my parents. Um, and, of course, he then suffered a lot when he retired because all of a sudden he didn't have that that addiction or that that outlet that he'd been so obsessed with all of, you know, most of his adult life, um, and that really destroyed him once he actually retired because, yeah, he didn't have that outlet anymore and he didn't actually know what to do with himself. So, yeah, it is, it's interesting. Um, when you think about addiction, um, Yeah, well, I mean, addiction is really just an extreme form of a habit, and most of what we do is habitual. So we need to realize that, you know, we've got all these things set up as habits that we do all day and we do without thinking about. And are those habits good for us or are they bad for us? Um, And how are they actually affecting our lives more generally? And having
0: good
1: habits is fantastic.
0: Absolutely. And, and there's so much of your story that's, that's so familiar to me in that, you know, at this very 25, 24, 25 years old, I made a decision as well that I couldn't continue to bypass, which is what I'd been doing. I'd been kind of loving outside my awareness, outside my body. I'd been in that place of just trying to put it all away and trying to, which is also where our stories connect. I would have sublimation as a defence. And for anybody's mm-hmm. listening, it's this innate drive to move away from pain and towards something that is more rewarding. So it's innate in me. It's, you know, um, I wouldn't describe it as an addiction, I would describe it as a, an innate defense. It's so automatic, it's incredible, it's amazing to watch it. And in that sublimation, I then drove. Myself to find the answers within. But it's the same drive that caused me to bypass there's it's the same innate need to keep away or stay away it doesn't matter whether it was turning in or turning out it doesn't matter so we have kind of similar you called it the an addiction I call it um sublimations I mean it's incredibly incredibly strong in me and I think it'll be part of me to the 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 dying a and day it was really interesting I um got rejected from a book deal during the week and um my automatic response was uh, defined a new agent and defined <laughs> like like that, and and I had to actually say, right, okay, stop, 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 stop. Let's just process. Let's process the loss. Let's pro. You know, how do can't stop and give myself that, which I had never done before. Anyway, so we're we're and and people listening to this might be hearing parts of themselves, parts of their own addictive personality. Maybe maybe sublimation. They might be listening, thinking, God, I have that. Is that what drives me? So you know, it's because this is where we're about to go now for everybody listening the awareness is the first step in change the awareness that you need to change the awareness that you want to change that that moment in time where you say or those moments that culminate in a decision where you say this is this is not going to be how it is. And how do you see that in the work that you do, these moments of change or these decisions to change a habit or become more conscious? What's your understanding of that, Mark, from a scientific point of view?
1: Yeah, so it's, it's interesting. I, I, I think that most of the time when we actually do make, decide to make a change, it's usually because of someone else. The mm-hmm. triggers that change it's usually either something you've done to someone else that's upset you or somebody else coming to you and saying you know th- th- there needs to be a change here or you know somebody leaves you or something but I think that's always I think we we as humans we, we are so interconnected and we rely so much on each other um, or we should anyway because that's how we've evolved for m- millions of years um, and so it's, it's such a big drive for us and most of our brain it has evolved, and we've evolved such a large brain to actually communicate and actually connect with other people. So that I think is what really drives us to change: is actually other people and some sort of push from someone else. Whether or not it's because you've hurt someone else and you're reacting to that, or whether or not somebody has come to you and said, "Hey, you know, I, I want you to change for these reasons," or "We need you need to change for these reasons," or "I'm leaving." Yeah. So you turn around and go, oh, I've got to change or, you know, I, I think it usually yeah, happens because of that, because of the connections we have um, and somebody else actually triggering that in us. I, I, I don't see it happening very often where somebody just decides to change because of themselves, because I think we don't have enough insight um, into our habits to do that. Um, to actually be that aware, to be that self-aware sadly. Um, yeah. though, maybe some people are, but I and think it's always difference, an external that's thing the
0: difference between uh, me a that whatness, was a was a constant companion, and that was where my awareness came from. There was nobody else. It, it was the awareness of the pain in me that triggered the change. So that's mm-hmm. definitely from what you're saying, because and for some people that can be true. As you say, not very many because we don't have enough insight. We have to be forced mm-hmm. on it, and especially with addiction as well. So normally we have to be forced on it. But in that awareness, because that's what we're saying is the critical aspect, doesn't it? That awareness of self, that understanding of, of our habits. I mean, in your in your in your research and your time, what have you seen, people? How have you how have you seen that come about for people?
1: Yeah, so it's 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 a difficult again. It's a difficult thing because we don't have um, access to the vast majority of our brain. So we have you know basically two two main areas, if you like, of our brains. There's lots more, but there's our working memory, which is what you're conscious of, which you're actually aware of, which is really limited, really, really limited. And I don't think we most people really appreciate how limited that actually is. So when you're listening to someone talk, 100% of your attention is on that person speaking if you're actually listening to them, because uh, speaking uh, verbal language uh, is is a very new ability of ours. We've only had complex verbal language for around about 150,000 years, which is really nothing in evolutionary terms. So that's a really new ability. And so it takes all of our attention and therefore all of our consciousness to actually process that information, to understand. And of course, we also we're monitoring the prosody of the voice and intonations and all these things, as well as just the words that are actually coming out and understanding those. So that area of your brain, the working memory, is really limited and we're, we're only aware of one thing that we're actually doing at a time and the whole idea of of um, of multitasking of course is is nonsense because our brains aren't capable of it. our brains are only capable of doing one task at a time, and then we switch from one task to another, so you know we, we, we're only doing that one thing, and then the rest of our brains. Are basically on autopilot. So that's all the unconscious areas of our brains, including our working memory, which is really important to understand that this, we've got this huge, vast working memory that actually does a lot and actually does, and does a lot of the innovation and creativity that we have going on because it's connecting all the different ideas and concepts within your working memory. Uh, but you don't have conscious access to any of that. So that's all happening in the background. Um, that's, of course, where we have all our. Um, habits, so all the things that we do automatically, so um, you know, when I always make a cup of coffee in the morning um, and sit down and start reading my diary and I'll often pick up my cup of coffee and, and I'll finish my cup of coffee. Now, I've drunk a whole cup of coffee without actually thinking about it, which is actually a really complex motor program to actually do that. But I do it without even thinking about it. And they, they think now, based on a lot of the brain research, it's somewhere between 40 and 60% of the things that we do during the day are actually all automatic. They're based on habits rather than actually be things that we're consciously aware of. So, you know, if you think about 60% of what you're doing during the day is just automatic. So it's really hard to be aware of all of that stuff that's automatic when we're actually just trying to do our normal you know, things during the day. So, yeah, that's why you've got to almost have someone saying this is a problem or this is an issue. I do a lot of work now with, you know, everyone's addicted <laughs> to their phones and addicted to devices and addicted to um, social media and all these things. And the first thing I do when I work with, clients on any of those addictions is say before we do anything let's put a monitoring app on because when you actually ask them they'll say yeah i don't like it because i don't feel good but i i I don't do it that often it's not something i do regularly it's not something whereas if you put a monitoring app on for example and say okay after a week come back and let's have a look at what you actually are doing on your devices you know they're always shocked it's always three or four times greater the amount of time they're spending on these things than they actually realise. Again, because it's all ridiculous. Yeah, that's the
0: bit. Yeah,
1: and that's the awareness. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the awareness part of it. That's a bit where you've actually got to go, hang on, I I want to monitor this objectively. So you need somebody external to do that for you or something external to do that for you. And then you'll actually come up with it because we're really poor at it ourselves. And we now know that, that there's, you know, in the past doctors used to do things like um sleep journals or they used to do food journals and so on and then we realized oh people are absolutely rubbish at actually filling these things in because they're not aware of what they're actually eating or they're not aware of when they're sleeping because again it's it's all automatic it's all habitual especially eating right we constantly put things in our mouth if it's around us uh, without even thinking about exactly. it and so
0: and if we take that, if we take that one step further, because we're talking about behaviors here, we're talking about eating, we're talking about sleeping, we're talking about, you know, the use of the mobile phone. But if we take that one step further, one step deeper, actually, and we think about the, we think about the, for, for people listening to this, the majority of people are listening to us today, today, is thinking about, so how do I become aware of that that is within, how do I come become aware when I say that that is within these wounded parts of us that are fundamentally puppeteering our lives these wounded parts of us that are <clears throat> talking about our worth our value our position in life our position in relationships our capacity for being loved or loving so we're talking about that deeper understanding now and what we're saying and what you're saying is a lot of that and what, what I know from from our work is that a lot of that is deeply unconscious and and maybe shows up in relationships shows up in you know shows up in problems but those problems are often externalized they're often outside the self they're often in in a place and a person and a thing and they're often externalized but when we become aware that they're actually belonging to us we that's psychologically what we call different stage of process when you're moving towards understanding i mean how much power do they do these we call them wounded parts of yourself you probably have different language mark but how much power do they have and how how much control do they have in our in our brains and how and how much damage do they do if they're not if they're not if we're not in awareness
1: yeah well as we i was saying before we've got this long term memory which is all of the stuff that's happened to us our episodic we've got our episodic memory and then we have the rote memory and then we have the um the jyrus, which is associated with our maps and where we've been and all the places we've been and all these so all of those long-term memories that we have stored in our brains they're actually what determines what we actually perceive so the world that we all see isn't actually veridical it's not actually based on what's actually out there in the world and I'll give you a little example of that. So when I speak, if you're in the same room as me, the complicates things with um, microphones. But if you're in the same room as me, my voice box moves, which just moves the air and creates a wave in the air, which travels through the air. And that then moves your eardrum, which then moves three little bones, which moves another little eardrum, which moves your cochlea up, which pushes a little hair cell up against the tympanic membrane, which causes electrical activity, which goes into your brain. And depending on where in your brain it's activated, your brain then creates an illusion that you've heard a sound. But my voice box didn't create a sound. My voice box simply moved air. And there is no sound in the world. The sounds that we hear is all created by our brains based on, A, the information that comes from our cochlea, and our knowledge of the world based on our long-term memory. And that's the same for all of our senses. Our visual system works exactly the same. Smell works exactly the same. There are no smells in the world. There are chemicals floating around. Now, they don't have smells. But again, they just go up our nose and then go into the mucus, which is why we have the mucus, and then attach to little um, neurons, which are actually hanging out in our nose, and it activates an area of our brain, and we create an illusion that there's actually smell out there. Um, so all of that stuff is created by our long term memory, not based on what's actually out there in the world, based on both what the input is yeah. and then it gets transformed. Yeah because yeah. it's transformed, because it's not actually what's what we're receiving. It's something different, which is important for us from an evolutionary point of view, plus what we actually know about the world. So everything that we've learned in the past, which means that we see and we perceive the world differently. We all do. We all see it differently to each other. We now know that um, depending on the language you speak, you actually see colours differently because of the experiences you've had and the vocabulary that you have around different colours, you therefore perceive colours differently as to the language you have. And we, we did some great studies. I'll say they're great because I did them. Um, many years ago where we just taught people um, a whole bunch of uh, faces and said "These this group of individuals are really, really nice people and they've done all these really good things. These group of people are really nasty people and they do really, really horrendous things. And then we, just, we scanned their brains and had a look what happens when they see somebody who they like smiling versus someone they don't like smiling. And we showed that when you see someone who you like smiling, the the areas of your brain light up just like you would be as if you were happy yourself. And so you get a a response, which is really positive and you feel good about life. Um, But when you see someone who you don't like, who you think is evil and they smile, the response in your brain is exactly the same as if they're angry. So you actually perceive it as though they're angry and you get the response in your body as though that person's actually angry. And the the most interesting thing about that whole study was afterwards we asked asked the participants, um, how did you remember the groups? Because they had to spend a whole week studying these groups of people. And they all said um, universally that it was really easy because you put the really attractive people in the nice group and you put the really ugly people in the really mean group. Now, of course, we mixed up the faces for every subject. So every subject got a different group of faces in the two groups. So there was no attractive or unattractive. But they actually perceived these people as unattractive if they knew something bad about them. And that's all automatic. And that's how we perceive the world is based on the knowledge that we have and all the stereotypes that we have and all the experiences we've had in the past. And all of our experiences are different and all of our learning is different. So, so therefore, our perception of the world, each of us, is different based on all of that. And so that's where a lot of this difficulty comes because you're perceiving the world from your perspective based on all your experiences in the past and then your brain creates this world which is is has evolved for you to perceive based on everything you've experienced yeah which is why you know people who have been through horrendous traumas will have a perception of the world very different to somebody who hasn't been through those traumas
0: and how individualize that is and, and this is where where our work comes in, because but let me give a real practical real life example to that right where and and I'll use me not because I really particularly want to talk about me because it's easier to use me and not use anybody else's client stories right but if you think about if you think about how I grew up you know not too dissimilar to you Mark I grew up in one of the, you know, we grew up, I grew up in the Troubles and I'm going to tell you the time frame, but I grew up in the Troubles in Northern Ireland, you know, there was devastation, there was, you know, desolation, there was no hope for the future. I grew up among, you know, we, alcoholism had you know, literally had my family by the throat and you know, multiple deaths, all of these aces, lots of stories, but primarily there was, you know, there was an understanding that I had not necessarily that anybody else had this is what's important here that there was nothing good in this world now that was my perception that was they were they are my words and the DNA I call it the DNA the DNA of that in my body was lethargy was pain was seeing not literally the visualization of the world was darkness heaviness the somatic interpretation in that in the body was the round the shoulders pull the head down was the seeing nothing and the emotional pain of that was a depression so the, there was an entire body of an experience in that perception of what life had to offer an entirety of a, like a puppet master at play and that was my perception that is how I saw the world that is how I saw what the world could offer me and I and I saw nothing good now I had sublimation so what I did was then I drove a certain quality of life but no matter what kind of quality of life I, I drove and at this stage I'm early 20s and I think I have two properties at this stage. We live in 24 years of age, you know. I got married, a wonderful man, a first child. I mean, it's idyllic. In comparison to where I had come from, you know, I come from one of the most deprived states in the European Union and it's idyllic. So what's the problem? I mean, what is the, look where you are. And I remember saying that to myself, look at what I have look at look at how i've got here i had a degree at that stage i mean i was in remedial class and called stupid for years in remedial school uh, remedial class for years so i had my first degree I had done all the, everything that was supposed to be good and yet i saw the world from this per, from this perception that i had grown up with because that had never changed And I had never been in awareness of it. And that was the filter. No matter what. No matter how big the garden was. No matter how big the house was. No matter how beautiful the husband was. That is how I perceived the world. And that is how my body perceived how I perceived the world. And every day, if I got even a glimpse of darkness, the same feeling would trigger my body. The same perception of the world would trigger the same lethargy would kick in this entire pattern would become a way of being that i would embody and yet it did not match what i had and that was my first piece of awareness i am being puppeteered here i'm being mm-hmm. absolutely puppeteered at my own hand does that make sense to you
1: yeah, absolutely, 100%, because that that is the, the, that long-term memory, right? That's that huge store of information that you've got in your in your long-term memory, which is generating your perception of the world, and that's all based on your experiences that you've had over, you know, you've spent 80% of your time in a very awful situation, and that's what most of that is going to be filled up with, and so, therefore, that's what's going to continually be perceived by your brain as, as being the norm, as being the normal. Um, and you that's what you need to shift um, if you are going to move forward. Um, yeah. But first you need to be aware of it and you need to be aware that your perception of the world is different to everybody else's perception of the world yes. based on your experiences and yeah. how are you going to change those experiences and how are you going to change those memories?
0: Yeah. yeah and I absolutely. Think I love what you said there because I think that's, we're starting to step something out here. We're starting to say the first thing is awareness. Mm -hmm. second thing is that what you're thinking and feeling is real and true to you because of your long-term memory because of your experiences that have been stored up in your body and in your mind because of those interjections because of those because of those perceptions and that that's not necessarily the reality now that's massive isn't it that's the Mm -hmm. that's the point in which you think okay what OK, because people want to hold on to that being the reality because it feels very much like the reality because they feel it. They're embodied by it. They're behaving on it. It's such a difficult thing. We call it separation. It's such a difficult thing as an awareness and then separation. But God, is that hard to do?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I I, I work a lot in what we call low SES areas with schools and usually primary schools. And so I'll be talking to the kids and these kids come from very harsh environments and most of them are in foster homes and so on. Um, and I talk about the fact that there, we don't know what the real world is. We, we have no perception of the real world. And so you can create your own world, whatever world you want to actually perceive. And yes, what you perceive right now may not be pleasant and may not be great and but you can actually change that based on who you have around you and your your memory of what's actually happened and if you take control of that then you can move forward and the kids i find the kids are much more receptive to it than adults often um, yes. Just because they are, uh, yeah, they've got you know these amazing imaginations. I mean, adults do too, but I think we're we're more practical. <laughs> we've we've been taught that we have to be practical about things, and whereas whereas kids are much more happy to go, yeah, hey, let's let's create new uh, images and let's create new realities for ourselves, um, and that'll be much more fun. And often with these kids, you'll see the ones who do that themselves. They have often they'll get in trouble in class, but they um, will be constantly. um um, imagining different worlds in their own brains you know they'll be off in their own little worlds but that's what they need to do to survive and they're the ones that actually tend to survive better because of the fact that they're able to do that they're actually going to their own little worlds and and escape that situation whatever it happens to be but yeah we need to realize that. that i
0: did that i spent years and years and years you know, not being where I was. imagining you know, princess dresses, and imagine, imagining it all. I mean, I just spent most of my life and most of my young life in my imagination.
1: Yeah, and, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's that's. I think it's important to realise that we we yeah our, our our real reality isn't really our reality. Our reality is unreal. It's it's based on again our prior experiences and it's not based on what's actually out there but based on an interpretation of what's out there um, and so it's all individual it's all based on us and we can change that if we want to um, And that's the That's, that's where you're going to move forward go ahead go yeah.
0: ahead you were going to say so
1: that i was just yeah. going to say that's that's where you move forward that's where you start actually making differences um actually realizing that you can actually change that yeah and i love that
0: yeah. I love that. Now, a lot of people are saying that as if it's easy, right? We're saying that as if it's just so easy just to kind of say, oh, here is, I'm operating in this way. I'm operating from an old paradigm. I hit the word paradigm to be fair because it eludes it its own mind-based. But I'm operating from this, this sense of self. I'm operating from this understanding of the world. And oh yeah, let me be aware of it and then let me shift it. It's not that easy because we've become so identified. we become so sure that this is the reality. We become absolutely convinced that these that what we're experiencing is the truth and also it's very hard isn't it to think greater than we feel mm. it's very very hard for for adults to think greater than the emotional program and that comes from these wounded parts of ourselves So, how have you seen uh, in, in your world, in your work, how have you seen once there's awareness, once there's kind of what we're now understand as separation, this isn't really how it is, it's how it is we call it the then and the now. You know, what what is that? what was then is permeating the now. And once you get that separation, how have you seen the change come about in your world? Um, how have you seen people then begin to shift?
1: those identifications, those senses of self? Or? Yeah, it's, as I'm sure you know, it's a lot of hard work. Um, a lot of hard work. But if, most of when, when I work with people, it's around, again, it's changing, it's making them objectively record what they're actually doing and objectively establishing what's actually happening so that they have that as a, 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 first as a way of going, okay, this is what I need to change, and then changing it by changing their habits, by changing their behaviours, and so they actually do things that we know are good for them. And, I mean, the, the best thing you can do for your mental health is actually just sit down with someone and talk to them. And the best thing for our long-term you know, brain health and stave off Alzheimer's disease, stave off any neurodegenerative disease, increase the likelihood that you'll live longer and all those things is actually just having people that you trust and you like that you spend time with and actually talk with face-to-face, actually, in person. And so uh, establishing routines where they have those people they work out first you got to work out who those people are because sometimes we don't know who those people are um and sometimes we don't have those people and got to find those people um, because of the fact that they've had you know a negative perception of the world and of themselves so they haven't actually attracted those people but yeah you need to find those people you need to work out who they are and then you need to r- routinely meet up with them and chat with them um, so that you get that constant feedback so that you're changing because our brain's um, a our brains are, are, are constantly changing um, based on neuroplasticity and we know that so we can change it and you if you're constantly doing the wrong thing then it's going to get stronger in that wrong way and if you change and start doing it in a positive way then it will slowly change in that positive direction so So, doing those things which are positive and which we know are really good for your brain and good for your mental health is really important. But you've got to factor them in. You've got to put them in as routines that you're going to do in your diary, (laughs) along with everything else you do during the day. You know, I, I find it amazing people have diaries and they have them full of all their work commitments but they don't have them full of all the things that are actually good for them, that they've actually got to do, that we've got to do during the day. And and so I say, you know, this is just as important as getting up and going to work. This is just as important as, you know, checking your email. This is just as important as all these other things you do. So you factor them into your day. Um, So, yeah, meeting up with people who are positive and are going to improve you in that direction and give you a positive view of the world, I think is really the number one for me when I'm working with people, but also getting rid of all those negative things that happen when, um, which whatever they happen to be, whether it's, you know, usually it's an addiction, usually it's something or some way of reacting, um, but just establishing that these are the things that you don't want to do and how you can actually stop those by doing those things, by having routines or having ways of actually stopping them by... You know, having triggers that are actually going to stop you from doing those things that you don't want to do. Because again, like I was saying, you know, it's a use it or lose it. So our brain gets stronger when we're actually using the good whatever parts and the, the parts we're not using slowly atrophy. Um, but also it adapts constantly. And so it's going to get used to things very quickly. Um, and so you need to make sure that you're doing things which are positive again so that it adapts to those. So it's actually seeking those out. Rather than seeking out the yeah. negative things that you've actually gone.
0: and I think for anybody listening to this, so it's really important that we understand once if we we take the steps that, that we've talked through. First step is awareness. The second step is separation. The third step, now that we're talking about, is actual change. So how does that change come about? How do you enforce that change? How do you how do you help that change? And what we find works in our modality is that we remove the emotional. The emotional uh, sight if you like of the wound then the then what happens as and this is how i've seen it certainly personally whatever what we we know whatever wires together fires together when you continue in terms of neuroplasticity you continue to think the same thoughts you continue to be the same person you continue to but what i find is whenever i was able to work with the emotional content of the nothingness that i had perceived Whenever I was able to remove and clean and clear, we call it clean it and, and remove it from the body, then yes, the wiring that had been created over the years, that neural pathway that had been created over the years, if there isn't this word's not good, this word's not good, that repetitive pattern, that would still fire, which is really interesting because it was because it was just programmed to do so and had been firing and wiring in the same way. But Once the emotional content was gone, which was really interesting, it kind of really died. I think you called it atrophy. It kind of then, once that, once my mind would go to think the same thought, it had nothing to have gone to. It had no emotional content to have gone to and alive in itself by. So it was kind of like, oh, what are we doing here? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, We're getting getting no reaction from the body here. OK. And my, and a lot of people who do the clearing work would, would experience the same thing. They would come back and they would say, I could see that my mind wanted to be in the same pattern, but it had nothing to source. The emotional connection to this wasn't sourcing the mind. And so the mind was kind of like, OK, uh, and then that's the stuff that you're talking about. And that's the kind of the repetition that the the rewiring of the new way like this world is a wonderful place it's you know it has so much to get then you're rewiring your mind to think that way so it picks and then it starts to see everything wonderfully now that might seem like magic it does not happen overnight for anybody's listening to this so you know and it does not in and of itself come cognitively you know it had there is two-part process it's an emotional process it's led then cognitively but the neuroplasticity of the mind is I could, I actually had experienced my own neuroplasticity because I could feel the, the disconnections I could experience, internally experience. My mind trying to be back in the same pattern.
1: Good, <laughs> like,
0: like this is a track I know I want to go in that track. Why would you go there? And the trying and the confusion in that in that rewiring process is incredible. You know, is that
1: something you would have heard feedback from from your own research and just incredible? Yeah, I, I also, um, I used to meditate. I don't now as much, which I wish I did more of. I think once I had kids, it became more difficult. But in the early days when I first went back to, you know, when I first went to university, um, I got right into meditation because I was really interested in working out what was going on. Um, and, and I found during that, there was this because, of course, with meditation, you've got to allow the thoughts to come, but just allow them flow of you and not add any emotional content to them and everything. And and that was, I think, probably a very similar experience where it just you, your mind just wasn't it wasn't making sense for my brain, and took a long time to actually make sense for my brain. Um, and I think that probably helped a lot in the long term, and I didn't realise that at the time, I was meditating because I was a very angry person at the time and I wanted to get rid of that anger and, and that was a way of getting rid of that anger. But there, there really was this dissociation between, you know, thoughts that were coming to me and me not actually attaching those emotions, that anger to it, um, and all of a sudden not not jowling. And, and, yeah, to begin with, it was weird. Um, mm-hmm. And for a long time it was weird. Um, yeah. and, and then there was this process of it actually started to make more sense. And then I used to, yeah, meditate quite a lot for long periods of time, and uh, I, I got a real buzz out of it. But yeah, I, after I had kids, I, I sort of went out the window. I'd love to try and get back into it. I yeah. surf these days instead. Yeah, well, that's, I think that's, that's just like, as good. That's, <laughs> that's <a> good. <laughs> just <meditation. as>
0: good. <laughs> but how, yeah. how long? Just an interesting question for me. How long does it take for the brain for atrophy to happen? For the for these for to stop wiring and filing? If you, how long does it take in
1: scientific terms yeah we have no idea um it really depends on um how strongly they're already wired up so we know um that's called heavy and learning where you know the cells that fire together wire together so that's where this actually forms to begin with so um, I always, when I'm teaching this, I always talk about my my father who's now passed away. But whenever I smell cinnamon, I think of my father, because whenever he used to have a, a win at the races, he'd always come home with an apple pie. Um, and so the smell of that associated with him actually being happy and coming home, um, yeah, had sort of linked up those all those things together, the smell and my father and him happy and good mood and the family and everything. And so... Um, that's heavy in learning. That's those cells that fire together, wire together, and depending on how 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 strong that wiring is, will then depend. Will we'll then um, determine how long it will take to actually atrophy at the end. So it's it's sort of like how long is a piece of string? Um, yeah, it really depends on the situation, and it depends on how good you are at not retriggering that. Yeah. That, that is wiring. that why so. the
0: emotional content once you work in the emotional content. And that's why, is that why it's a question? I think it's why from our from our research and from our our outcomes, what we pay particular attention to the emotion primarily. And then secondary is the rewiring process.
1: Yeah, because your emotions are really how we have emotions as a warning sign, right? We have emotions that there's, there's a, war, there's a warning that there's something there that we need to attend to. Um, and so they're very, very visceral and they really need to be attended to whenever they actually happen. So if you want to get rid of. Any sort of yeah responses, you need to get rid of that trigger first, which is that warning sign um, of the emotion. And then once you've got rid of that, then you can work on the other things because that's really, you know, I mean, same with any sort of warning sign, right? It's if your uh, smoke alarm goes off, you got to turn off the smoke yeah. alarm before you, you, <laughs> before you start know know. ringing people and yeah. saying, you know, hey, hey you don't have to worry. Yeah, ring the fire department and say, hey, don't come. You don't yeah. want to do that while <laughs> like it's going that. off. <laughs>
0: Yeah, Yeah. I love that. Yes, it's like that. It's like, you know, you want to turn off the smoke alarm before you start trying to play in your mind, which is why affirmations sometimes are so difficult for people, because they're working against the signals in their bodies, why we can't think greater than how we feel. So um so yes that's and and if we do that work first then we've a better chance like this painting behind me is my father's funny enough and it and it reminds me of the neural pathways we talked about this it reminds me of all the neural pathways but if they're firing from heavy heavy emotion and we're not just talking about you know fire alarms as in as in fear we're talking about shame we're talking about blame we're talking about you know we're talking about loathing we're talking these are the same signals the bodies that have you know then such heavy signals and some of these very difficult emotions So it's not just fear of fear is one of the signals but if you've got a constant feeling of of shame worthlessness and if we work in that emotional content and understand the context for it and separate from it then you have more chance of i love that's my new word for the week now mark Atrophy, the dying of the the of the the, the uh, thought connections.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I mean we have whatever hundred billion connections in our brain. So there's a hundred billion connections there, um, and they're reforming and dying constantly. Um, so every day our brain is changing slightly, um, but it's getting stronger in those ones that are happening a lot. So if you're having these emotional responses or you're having these negative thoughts or whatever it is a lot, then those ones are getting stronger and they're going to happen more often. And so what you want to do is, is stop those so you can have those can atrophy away as they will eventually. Um, and, and then strengthen other ones which will be the more automatic ones that you actually are responding to, which are the happy ones. And yeah that joy
0: I and love, I love contentment that because that's the things you write in your diary <laughs> that mm. diary, that's the stuff you write in your diary you write in your diary you know if you've done the emotional work and you've done those steps that we've talked about we've done this awareness work the separation work the emotional work and now you're literally putting in your diary you know remember how wonderful you are whether it was worthlessness well you're literally rewiring that emotion that that new emotional content and rewiring that new new thought process about how wonderful you are how great you are whatever it is whatever the wound is the opposite of that you're literally rewiring that and that's the repetitiveness that we need to get into the habit of Mm -hmm. these new ways of being is that is that a fair in an hour we're coming to the end of it is that a fair understanding of the process of change from a neuroscientific point of view
1: yeah, no, that's beautiful. That's exactly right. You know, if you if you keep doing the same thing over and over again, no matter what it is, that's what's going to become stronger, and so that's what's going to be automatic and what's going to keep going. And anything that you stop doing and you um, manage to inhibit, then that's going to atrophy slowly, and you no longer have access to it because it'll it'll just disappear. Um, which is what we really want to do with those bad thoughts, absolutely, um, and we want it really strengthen those positive thoughts so that we can all be more positive towards each other and
0: and then and then I love this and, and you said it and then we didn't pick it up but I, I think we'll end with this and then it's about building positive relationships then it's about building it's about building good connection then it's about you know your inner work is your inner work but that can be helped I think I heard you say that can be helped by those around you by who you're connected to That's what the book really fundamentally talks
1: about, doesn't it? It tells a wee bit more, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it talks about the fact that we have, you know, we we are the alpha species on this planet purely because we're connected, purely because we actually collaborate with each other, purely because we're actually able to do those things, and we do that across the world, right? We all of humankind actually collaborate with each other, which is astounding when you think about it. And then, no other animal. Does that you know? We can think of things like bees that have these amazing bee colonies, um, but one bee colony or one hive won't turn around to the other hive and say, "Hey, there's some lovely flowers over there. If you want to go and come and you know collect them with us," whereas we do. We we collaborate across all our our whole species, which is quite amazing. Um, and we do that because our brains have evolved to enable us to do that, and that's why we have huge brains and we're able to communicate with each other. And and that's something that we need to be aware of. Because if you want to have a healthy brain, you need to exercise your brain. And the best way to exercise your brain, the thing that acts exercises it more than anything else, activates more of it, is actually just being face-to-face and actually communicating with someone that you actually trust. So actually sitting down and having a conversation with someone is better for your brain than anything else you can do, better than all those apps that are out there or anything like wow. that. And it's actually better for your mental health than any drugs that we currently have. So it's better for depression or anxiety or any of these things than any drug we have available is actually just sitting down and actually chatting with someone, which is why therapy works so you know well. Um, and so what we need to do is do more of that, and we're doing less of that. Kids today are more lonely than they've ever been in the past. We have this huge problem with loneliness at school, which is just insane. They're at school with all their friends, supposed friends, and all their teachers, and yet they're feeling more lonely than they ever have before. Um, and we need to stop that. We need to actually start communicating with each other and actually connecting again on a real level so that we can actually thrive into the future. Because to all the 21st century skills say, you know, around emotional intelligence, empathy, um, you know, collaboration, teamwork, leadership, all these things, which which rely on us actually being able to communicate really well with each other and being able to talk to each other better. And we're losing that Um ability which I think is really sad and we're losing that because we spend way too much time on devices and we're losing that because of what happened with COVID and the lockdowns and we all got very um social anxiety went through the roof during that period because again what we've been talking about right everyone was stuck in their houses weren't told you're not allowed to touch each other which touch is really important for connection Um, and you know you have to wear the mask you have to stay away from everyone you don't have to go to work anymore because we have this new new normal where we don't go to work anymore and so on And, and so therefore our brains have now changed and adapted to this new environment which actually really is not healthy for us at all not healthy for any of us and so we need to break that cycle and start communicating with each other more and actually getting out and spending time with each other but yeah, I have tips and tricks at the end of each chapter so that we can actually right. work on because mental health th- and improve things.
0: I think that alongside the conversation that we've just had is a kind of a, like a kind of a 360 idea, 360 understanding of how we heal. You know, we began yeah. this podcast an hour ago talking about change and the possibility of change and the possibility of healing. But but if we take what we talked about, these steps that by the way for the listener we had no idea this was going to come it just came quite naturally from our conversation these this idea of awareness and healing and and then we look at this kind of so how is all of that supported how is that change supported well it's supported by a connection it's supported by coming off your phone it's supported by staying off the apps It's supported by possibly you know we've got a wee bit of meditation going on for good but it's also supported by real loving human touch connection and so you know, back to the old basics, really.
1: Mm.
0: Back to being yeah, it is. what we are as human. So, Mark's book talks about that beautifully. So, and then, as you say, Mark, it gives lovely tips and techniques at the end of every chapter how we can be doing more for ourselves. If you're. Yeah, right.
1: it goes through really practical guide to, you know, how we can actually improve this for all of us Brilliant. and for our whole species so that we can, yeah, move forward. I think we're at a real crossroads at the moment. We need to decide which way we're going to go. And hopefully people will read the book and take some of the tips and we'll all start heading in the other direction, which is what we made
0: (laughs) yeah absolutely and for anybody that's on a healing journey which is most of my audience this book will help you then you know you're not an island on your healing journey you're not a lone person on an island that we build this island filled with people that will help your brain health as you are in the process of changing which is also a big process in itself and you can't do it on your own and you know uh mark's uh, book speaks to how you could do that in a more in a, in a more fruitful way that will be really good for your mind as well brilliant Mark.
1: absolutely life's okay. a journey
0: <laughs> life's a journey exactly that um thank you so much any anything else you'd like to add or are we are we good
1: no that's i think we're good shauna thank you for having me along it's been real it's been great it's been great fun talking to you and having someone who's you know, well, we we come from completely different backgrounds, but I, I think yeah, there's a lot. There's that's amazing how many synergies there are um, between our work and also in our backgrounds, yeah, which is amazing, amazing to chat to. Yeah,
0: two uh, advocates of uh, change, and advocates of the potential of the human condition. Yeah? So we'll end there. Um, and thank you so much for um, listening to whatever episode number this was, and I'll see you so again soon. <laughs> Take care for now.